Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are Picture the Scene Podcast. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. Each week we delve into the murky world of lesser known crimes from the UK and Ireland. And occasionally we venture into renowned cases from around the globe. If you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. Subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice. And if you have the capability, give us a rating and review as well. And if you like us that much that you want to support us and see us carry on doing this for the foreseeable future, then please do head over to Patreon where you can support us for as little as £1 a month. We have bonus content on and episodes depending on your tier and it really does help us carry on, doesn't it, Rachel? Yeah, it keeps, keeps the lifeblood of our podcast going. And with any true crime podcast, listener discretion is always advised. And today there is no exception. And also, we do, where possible, now release our episodes a week early for our Patreon supporters. So if you want to hear next week's episode, which will be presented by Rachel, by the way, today, head on over to Patreon. So you how? Lucky things. Yes, you lucky, lucky things. So I want to know how you and the bump are doing, Rachel. But before you answer that one, I think um, we should make a little confession to our listeners. Now, before everyone's thinking it, no, the confession is not that I'm the father. It's not that sort of confession. <laughs> it... How many times have you alluded to that? <laughs> it's good. It makes people people like to think that they they can. We're romantically involved. Yes, it, it helps with our listeners. It so would take all... some effort, guys. We we live in two different places and, yeah. and not, not connected by land. Yes, and my wife scares me. Oh, yes, well, that too. Andrew is married yes. and I'm engaged. So uh, that, that would be an additional complexity to the situation. <laughs> it would indeed. And let's be honest, I wouldn't want an affair with me so i don't think anyone else would either <laughs> i mean this this has gone like dramatically off piste quite quickly. it has yes anyway the confession so in order for you all not to have any break while rach welcomes a new addition to her family and obviously all the extra hard work that comes with having a newborn baby we're recording a few episodes in advance so you won't have so so you would have either given birth rachel or be very close to ready to give him birth by oh, the wow. time by the time our listeners hear this episode. A bit scary. Yes, yes. So, yeah, so I, I wanted that. I will. I will obviously let everyone know that you were safe along with the baby when that happens. But for now, how are you? And how is the bump? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Uh, it's growing and it's getting in the way of things now. I can't just like bend over and pick things up and put my shoes on. Like I'm sure any pregnant women. Or women that have recently given birth, or women just in general that have amazing memories of being pregnant or just giving birth, would sympathise with me. Um, at the just the, the small things in life which are taken away from you in the third trimester, sleep, being able to tie your shoelaces, and um, your balance being completely off all of the time. Oh no, I, I feel you, Rachel. I'm like that. I've not been able to put my socks on properly for a few years. Um, <laughs> Um, I I just made Rachel spit a t- cup of tea out. Then who put who puts his socks on? I put my socks on, but it's with a you bit just of struggle. Coffee. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, the dog normally watches me with perplexion perplexion because I'm trying to do it fast in the morning. I can see you coming downstairs, and Nicky's like, "What's wrong?" And you're like, "Oh, just had a right struggle with my socks." <laughs> yeah, indeed. 
my my dad actually had. I'm going off on a tangent here. Listen, sorry. My dad used to have this thing that helped him put his socks on because he was like getting old. It was like you put your your sock on it and then you put your foot in it and it holds your sock open. Quite ingenious. Anyway, that sounds pretty clever. Anyway, listen. Sorry about that. Oh, Rachel, let's get back to what we're here for. Are you ready for some true crime? After this conversation, yes. You know, because our listeners definitely have not tuned in to hear about the struggles that we're both having with putting our socks on. So, yes, let's get to the script. Let's do it. So today, though, I know everyone's used to me going for the more obscure cases or unknown cases, but today I'm actually looking at a case that we all know about. But it's one that I found fascinating and I wanted to cover. So I always have the rule of thumb, and I know you do too, Rachel. If we enjoy it, we assume that most of our listeners will enjoy it as well, don't we? Yeah, I think that's a really good like measure. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, it's it's one that I've heard of and I can like provide some insights maybe because quite often when I'm doing cases, Andrew's like, oh yeah, what about this? I'm like, oh, I didn't think of that. So yeah. I think you would have heard of this one. So everyone, if it's safe for you all to do so, I'd like you to relax, close your eyes and picture the scene. Today, I'd like to take us back to the 25th of September, 2020, and we're heading over to Norbury. Norbury is located in the borough of Croydon in South London. It's got a varied, diverse, multicultural community within it. With it being located roughly seven miles from the centre of London, it's a densely populated area with just over 16,000 people living in a small neighbourhood. So on this day in September of 2020, it's around half past midnight, and Louis de Souza was walking down London Road. Louis didn't live that local to the area, around nine miles away in Barnstead, Surrey. And it was a dry, cloudless night, but it was cold, with the temperature being around six degrees Celsius, which is around 43 degrees Fahrenheit. Louis was 23 years old at the time. He has Sri Lankan heritage, as that's where his father, Chana, who was a yoga teacher, was born. He was born, Louis was born in the UK, however, as that's where his father and his British-born mother, Elizabeth, lived. His mum was an interpreter, but also a Green Party member. And he had, he also had two siblings. So with his dad being a yoga teacher and his mum being a member of the Green Party, you'd probably assume that his childhood was probably one that was quite peaceful. Yeah, I that's the picture that you painted and and like yeah. I don't I don't mean to like pigeonhole here but like maybe quite like hippie-ish. Yeah, that's the picture you get in your head. It, yeah. It, it goes to show you what like stereotypes do because God, here we go. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. Massively offended Louis and his family. No, because that's you, everyone I pictured that when I first read it, but it's something that Louis would actually later to dispute because he would go on to say that his dad had a cocaine habit. I would often beat him. Once, oh. break, yeah, once breaking his foot by hitting him with a wooden slap from a bed. Oh, but shit. yeah, but he also admitted though that he once hit his dad with a metal bar. So we just don't know. It's worth noting, just for transparency, his dad did have convictions for domestic abuse. So it's oh. more than likely that it was true that he got hit by his dad. Isn't that heartbreaking? Yeah, it is. He was. He was a quiet and reserved child, Rachel. Some yeah. call some call him geeky, 
and he excelled in his studies. At the age of 13, he had been diagnosed as being on the autistic spectrum, and as such, he said he was bullied at school, but that didn't let but he didn't let any of that stop him excelling. He was quite intelligent, having gained four A-levels, and he managed to obtain a sought-after place in the quite prestigious University College of London to study mechanical engineering. So yeah. his yeah, so his future was looking quite bright. And even though he was quite intelligent, even from a young age he had trouble controlling his emotions. And he would often have violent outbreaks when he became stressed and he would punch walls and furniture, usually causing himself to bleed. After his first year of university, he dropped out, though, for reasons I couldn't find, but he did seem he did have some major anger issues, so they may feed into it. Dropping out of university, though, didn't stop him getting a good job, and he soon got a job after he left at the HMRC, which for non-British listeners is a tax office, and he was a tax analyst. So at this stage, he was still living at home with his parents. However, his life was starting to unravel. He had no previous convictions prior to this day in 2020, but he had been arrested twice, once for fighting with his friend in the street and the second for fighting with his dad in the street. Well, not really fighting with his dad, like tussling. Because I'm not sure any blows were actually thrown. I was going to say, would if you fought with your dad in the street, would could a member of the public report you, or would his dad have reported him? Like, no, it was. I think it was just a unknown, like member of the public phone. Oh, in. okay, yeah, yeah. Because he he actually claimed on that instance that like, his dad had been chasing him on the bicycle, which is why he did that. But again, we we don't know. Now, he wouldn't be charged with anything as a result of these two offences, but he would move out of the family home and he'd move into a flat that had a workshop in it in a place called the Coach House, which was in Barnstead in Surrey. That sounds nice, the Coach House. Yeah, and if you've got an apartment that has a adjoining, like an adjacent workshop with it, then it must be a pretty nice apartment. Yep, sounds it. So by, by this time, though, he had lost his job. I'm not sure if it was out of choice or if he'd been fired, but he was unemployed. It claimed, though no proof was ever given, that by July of 2020, he had begun dealing drugs and he was smoking. Well, that was claimed they had begun dealing drugs, but he admitted he was smoking around £200 worth of cannabis every week. Oh, that's quite a habit, isn't it? It's a fair amount, yeah. Interestingly... We obviously won't know why for sec- for national security reasons, but he'd been flagged to the Home Officers Prevent Deradicalization Program as someone who potentially could be a threat to national security. But after being assessed, we've obviously all this happened without him knowing, he was deemed not to be a threat. You know what? I've just remembered you said it's a well-known case. And what you're... Sorry, I've got the hiccups. What you're telling me... I'm I'm not painting any picture at the minute. And when you, you just said um that we wouldn't know why, but he was referred to the home office, like really intrigued now. Not that I wasn't intrigued at the start of the episode, but you really got the cogs turning. I think you will. I've just added a bit of his backstory to it that yeah. wasn't yeah. wasn't like focused on by most of the news outlets. Makes sense. Yeah. So in this time he was growing more and more unstable, 
with his electronic devices showing he was searching for and viewing things related to weaponry and violence, but not linked to one specific ideology. So it was probably more the violence that appealed to him as he was viewing right-wing extremism, so racism and things like that, but he was also viewing Islamic extremism and like homophobic um, violence towards uh, gay and lesbian people in the LGBTQI a plus community so oh. yeah so he'd also brought an antique revolver a colt point 41 that was made in 1895 and it was actually illegal to buy because it was so old they didn't make bullets for it anymore so it was legal to buy because you couldn't get an ammunition but you have to remember that this is a highly intelligent man so he wouldn't let that stop him so he bought himself primers casings and lead balls and in his workshop, he simply made his own bullets. So let's get back to the very early hours on the 25th of September, 2020. Now, you have to remember that this was six months after COVID changed the world. The British government had stopped the first lockdown, but they hadn't introduced the second lockdown yet, because that would be at the start of November. Yeah, but, right before Christmas, I remember yeah. that. Fondly, yeah. Yeah, but you would still not be able to gather in groups of more than six, and you had to work from home, and there was still a 10 p.m. curfew on hospitality establishments. So even though there was no lockdown, it was still pretty quiet outside, and yep. you got to remember he's walking around like half past midnight. So I don't know if I mentioned that yet. Have I mentioned that what time it is yet? No. So Lewis walking around around half past midnight would have been quite unusual for the time. The streets would be pretty empty at that time and nowhere would be open. But here he is walking down London Road in Norbury when he didn't even live in that location. He had jeans on, a dark coloured coat that was just past his waist and a small brown duffel bag. As he was walking down London Road, two police officers who were patrolling spotted him and thought that he looked suspicious so they stopped him for a stop and search as they call them to see what he was doing and to make sure he wasn't carrying anything that he shouldn't be carrying they must have been really suspicious about him because it's really difficult to conduct stops and searches now isn't it like you have to have, you have to give a reason yeah oh yeah and like that reason can't just be oh yeah he looked suspicious there needs to be good enough reason so that he can't be targeted for it being like you know any particular type of like hate crime really yeah so, no you're you're right and there was and they had body cameras on so in a yeah. very short while i'm going to play like an audio clip that you can hear so it gives a reason in there so okay nice. no you're exactly right so yeah they wanted to see what he was so when they asked him where he was going he would say that he was going to his parents' house to see his dad. Mm -hmm. And later he would elaborate on this to say that he was going there due to a previous argument he'd had with his dad, with the implication that a fight might happen. So as is usual in a stop and search, they patted him down for weapons and they found none. So they went ahead and searched his pockets and his bag. Before they could do that, though, knowing what they'd find, Louis said, admitted that he had a small amount of cannabis on him in his bag. So when they searched him and his bag, they found three grams of cannabis and they also found a pouch that contained seven bullets. 
Now, he was immediately arrested, and the two police officers, a PC Rich Davy and a PC Samantha Still, they called him for a van to pick him up and take him to the police station. So roughly 40 or so minutes later, a van arrived, and he was placed in the back of the van, now handcuffed, and he was taken to the police station. So I've got a little 20 or 30 second clip here, Rachel, I want to play, and it's just a joined-up audio clip with snippets from the body cam. I'm not obviously going to play everything, but just the, the thing that I think is good to hear, when he was stopped by the two police officers, when he was arrested, and when they called for the van. At the moment, you're walking down the road with a duffel bag, all right, which I which I believe may have stuff going to equip to do a burglary, all right? So I'm just going to search you. Right, at the moment, right. I'm placing you under arrest. Okay. For possession of what I believe to be bullets. Could I have van and cell space for one man adult arrested for possession of what I believe to be bullets? Oh, wow. Okay. Right, so I've got another clip later on I'm going to play as well. But, yeah, that gives you the reason. So there was, it was on suspicion of going equipped to do a burglary. So that's a good enough reason for a stop and search. So when they arrived, yeah, So when they arrived at the station, he was taken to a holding cell ready to be processed by their custody sergeant, and he was left alone in that holding cell for eight minutes until a custody sergeant was able to come and see him. So when the sergeant, and that sergeant was a Matthew Ratana, or Matt, as he liked to be called, was available, he arrived at the cell and he first spoke to PCs Davy and Still to find out what the arrest was for. And when they told him they'd found bullets, he told them that a further search was needed. And a wand would be needed. Now, a wand is what they call a handheld metal detector. So at this point, Lewis was sat down, still handcuffed with his hand behind his back, watching and listening to them. Sergeant Matana then addressed Lewis, saying that it was his decision whether to hold him or not. And before he made that decision, he was allowed under Section 54 of the PACE Act. Now, PACE stands for Police and Criminal Evidence Act that he was allowed to authorise a search. So I just want to play play you the audio for that now, Rachel, if that's okay. Okay, yep. Investigation, you've been arrested on suspicion of possession of bullets, uh, ammunition, and possession of intent to supply. Class yep. B. Class B, anything else? No, that's it. All right, your detention's not been authorised yet, but I can authorise a search of you under Section 54 of PACE. Stand up. Mate, you're good enough to... So it, it stops there. So he then asked Lewis to stand up as we heard. So this was so that he could be searched, but Lewis didn't automatically stand up. And he made a movement, but it didn't seem like he was going to stand up. So PC Davy was on the left of Sergeant Ratana, and PC still on his right. And PC Davy leaned forward and got a hold of the top of Lewis's arm to get him to stand up. Now Sergeant Ratana, or Matt, started to say, as you heard in the audio, probably to reason with Lewis, like, he said, mate, you've been good enough too, but then he didn't get to finish his sentence. As Lewis leaned to his left from his right, sorry, as Lewis leaned to his left and from his right, his hands appeared, still cuffed, but now holding a gun. And within seconds, he aimed and fired at Sergeant Ratana, shooting him in the chest fatally. So you have to remember that this happened all really quickly. And I'm about to describe it. So it sounds slower than what it was because I'm describing it. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it wasn't slow at all. 
It's actually on YouTube as well, isn't it? Like the body, um, the cell footage. Yes. Can be found on the internet because it's had quite a bit of. Um, yes, it can be. Coverage, yes. hasn't it? This case. Yes. Uh, so Louis then shot a second time, hitting Sergeant Rattan in the leg, and he then went to pull up, pull his hand up to his head to shoot himself. But PC Davy by this time had reacted and had grappled him, causing the third shot to miss and hit the wall. Now, as he was on the floor, now being grappled by both PC Davy and PC Still, a fourth shot went off, hitting Lewis in the neck. PC Davy was then able to get his taser out and taser Lewis, and he was restrained. So, yeah, everyone probably knows this case by now, but I'm going to carry on. Um, so, Sergeant Matt Rattana, he died that night, not long after in the hospital, while the doctors worked at him to try to save his life. He was 54 years old. He was due to retire in three months' time. Matt was born on the 3rd of May, 1966, in the Hawke's Bay region of New Zealand, and he was of Maori heritage. In 1989, when he was 23, he had moved to the UK and joined the British police force, having been a police officer for almost 30 years. He had gone back for five years in 2003 to work in New Zealand for the British High Commission, but he was still a serving police officer. Now, at the time of his death, he was a custody sergeant. In his personal life, he was in a loving relationship with Sue Bushy, his partner, and he was a keen rugby coach in his local rugby club. He was well-respected and admired in his community. So, where did Lewis get a gun from in the police station while he was handcuffed? It's probably the question... Some people are asking if they don't know this case. So the gun, you've been quiet, so it means you know, but you don't want to spoil it. Is that right? Yes. Correct, yeah. So the gun was the revolver I mentioned earlier, and he had a gun holster that went under his armpit, but back a little bit. And he hadn't been properly searched when they, when they originally stopped. So the two police officers, Davy and Still, assumed he wasn't armed. And as he was handcuffed behind his back, they thought that he was secure and not a danger. And as you've, as you've said earlier, Rachel, we can actually see that search online on YouTube. And you can see that it wasn't a proper search at all, So, which is why they didn't find the gun. Now, it also seemed that Lewis had a condition called hypermobility, which meant... Do you know what that is, Rachel? Okay. I do, yeah. Yeah, which meant that he had unusual flexibility in his joints. That allowed him, when he was in the back of the van, to reach his gun, and he kept it in his hand, ready to shoot. I'd actually heard that he could have dislocated, potentially dislocated his shoulder to get to get into the position as well without like feeling any pain. But was that just one of those sensationalized like rumors? It may have been because it wasn't mentioned anywhere. Hypermobility was mentioned quite a lot of places, but. Yeah. So it could be. I mean, we don't, we'll never know, will we? But it could have been, but probably not. So as a result of the gunshot wound to his neck, Lewis says he suffered brain damage, which meant that he would be unable to walk unaided, although he could walk with a stick, and he would also be unable to speak, and, and he would well, speak properly, and he would communicate by writing on a whiteboard. So he would quite obviously be, when he was fit enough, be arrested on suspicion of murder. But before he could go to trial, though, his defence barristers would try twice to claim 
that he was unfit to stand trial. He was examined by numerous consultants, including a neurosurgeon and also experts at Broadmoor High Security Psychiatric Hospital, and also by experts instructed by both the defence and the prosecution. So the defence had the opinion of a neuropsychiatrist, Dr Quinton Dealey, who said that while Lewis could communicate with the whiteboard and on occasion short-spoken sentences, he was unfit to plead, therefore unfit to stand trial due to his inability to understand proceedings or be able to give instructions to his legal advisers. So Dr Nigel Blackwood, for the prosecution, who was a consultant forensic psychiatrist, did say that when he first saw Lewis six months after the murder, he agreed that he was unable to stand trial, but he subsequently improved enough that he could stand trial, provided that the courtroom process was sufficiently simplified and Lewis had the services of an intermediary. So Lewis would be found fit enough to stand trial, so his trial was heard in the first half of 2022 last year. He would plead not guilty to murder on the grounds of diminished responsibility as he was suffering an autistic meltdown at the time. So so he was not aware of what he was doing. So it would come out in trial that Lewis had said he had been carrying a gun for four to five months prior to when he used it to kill. He said that he started carrying a gun as he had been robbed and attacked three times over drugs. He said that he was not extremist and that he didn't know why he killed Sergeant Ratana. The prosecution speculated that he was in fact on his way to his dad's to use a gun on him when he was stopped. Although obviously that was just pure speculation, it was never proven. It would come out in the trial that he had various weapons in his workshop, either homemade or bought, including a rifle, ammunition for a rifle, a shotgun, shotgun uh, pallets, and various other weapons. So the jury at the trial, it was basically, the trial was basically, is it diminished responsibility or not? Because he couldn't deny that he had done it because, like you said, CCTV showed him shooting him. So the jury at the trial disagreed that he was suffering from an autistic meltdown. So they found him guilty of murder. In his sentencing remarks, the judge stated that Belmarsh Prison had said that they were capable of holding him and he would get the appropriate medical treatment so that he would be sent to prison rather than a secure hospital. The judge, flatly and probably quite bluntly, would say that he didn't believe that he was suffering from any type of meltdown at all, that the fact that he had sat in the cell by himself with the gun in his hand for eight minutes just waiting, and also for 50 minutes between arrest and being at the station, meant that he was calm, collected, and he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, and I think as well, like, he'd had the opportunity when they stopped and searched him to be honest. They'd found bullets, like, you know, in his head, he might have been thinking, before they find the gun, I'm just going to say, listen, there's also a gun in the holster. Like... Well, he admitted that he admitted that the reason he told him about the cannabis straight away was to divert their attention from looking properly, searching him, so they wouldn't find a gun. Well, do you not think then that that shows an el- an essence of um, 
like ability to think straight. Yes. Yes, I can get so, those, yeah. yes. He shot literally shot himself in the foot. Well, not no, he hasn't. Yeah. He shot himself in the neck, didn't he? But he has like really ruined his um some yeah. of his defense there, weakened it. And if you do see the video on YouTube, then um you see that he's calm and collected as well when he's being stopped. There's no like yeah, he he was fine. You know what's really sad though, like about the video and about this case is that um Matt, who got shot and killed that night, you've already alluded to the fact that he was three months off retirement, but like he was genuinely a really nice guy and he was kind yeah. of in the wind down of his career, wasn't he? Because yeah. he was three months away from retirement. He's a custody officer, you know, doing the night shift. And and in a lot of ways, that's probably one of the safest policing jobs in London, isn't it? In the custody custody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the fact so, that he he knew what should have been done because the first thing he said yeah. to me to hear the recording is he needs to be searched again with the wand. So he knew that they should have searched him. Yeah. A weapon, but yeah. Um I think that just adds that like sadness to the case, doesn't it? It does. And the judge the judge said that Lewis's autism was not to blame for the murder. And he went on to list what happened, right? about autism and the different characteristics. So he said none of that would have been a mitigating factor. He said that it was argued by the defence that his upbringing being difficult should be a mitigating factor. But the judge pointed out that he he had obtained four A-levels, three of them A's, and he had a job at the HMRC at one point. So his upbringing, while being sad, because the judge accepted that his father did beat him, he said that it was not a mitigating factor. He said that the fact that he had no previous convictions also wouldn't be a mitigating factor due to the fact that he was sure that he'd been involved in drugs and weapons before killing uh, Sergeant Maritana. And he would go on to impose a whole life order on Lewis, meaning that he would be the 65th person to be given one in the UK. Wow. So yeah, I found it fascinating simply because of how it happened. Like there was, there was like it seems to me, and now this is just my opinion that he did it because he became obsessed with violence. And George even admitted that yes, the his autism would have contributed to his obsession with weapons and violence, but it wouldn't have been an excuse for committing violence. So he seemed to just. Wanted to do it, and and obviously he wanted to kill himself because he went to raise a gun and shoot himself in the head. But because PC Davy tackled him, he basically failed to kill himself. So it, his plan all along was to kill and kill himself, um, which again shows that level of like premeditation. You yes. know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take out whoever I can in this room, and then I'm gonna take my own life so I can't be punished for it. Yes, yeah, so it's it's a sad one. I think it's a, a I think it's the appropriate um, sentence. A whole I, life. Yeah, yeah I, I I also it sounds odd me saying this, but I'm quite glad he failed to kill himself. So he has to be punished, and also now he's he has to be punished, and he's in a condition where he's not fully like 
as able-bodied as he was. He's not got a great quality of life, has he? Yeah. Seeing out the rest of his life behind bars. Yeah. So, yeah. So, what did you think of this one then, Rach? Yeah, I remember it at the time, and it's so sad. I think his his brother in New Zealand, like he he was re- he was a real pillar of his community. He did a yes. lot for like the local rugby team, didn't he? And yes. fundraising and took kids under his wing and really kind of was one of those people that was outstanding in so many ways. Um, and for him to die and for his his wife or his partner to have like, you know, said goodbye to him that night and and thought, yeah, I'll see you in the morning. Like, but for that to be the last time, it's just just such a sad case. And um there's been a lot of um um like there's been like BBC documentaries on the case and there's been a lot of press coverage because of the sentencing. But you you know, it it's well known in this country. You take the life of a police officer. Um, or you abuse, you know, the position that you're in, being a police officer, your sentencing is unlike any other, isn't it? It's a capital crime, isn't it? Absolutely. So absolutely he got the right punishment. Um, I do think that whilst there are complexities with his state of mental health, um, in this particular situation, it seems like he was using that as a bit of a fallback. Yes. Um, you know, in in my opinion, um, obviously not wanting to upset anyone there, um, but you know, that I think that 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 was seen through by the judge. Um, again, making the right decision to to still give him that level of punishment that that really would match the crime. Yeah, because he was. I mean, let's be honest, it was never fully proven, but he he had basically still had a job selling drugs. That was his job. He yeah. was holding down and in a loving and stable relationship with a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So his life wasn't like he was having a mental breakdown. No, he had a lot going for him, didn't he? Yeah. And when you see him being stopped, even like he says, like, oh, my ID is in my pocket. You can see he's calm and collected. When he's yeah. being searched, he's calm and collected. When he's in the cell, you can see him just sat there listening. And even the way, like, Sergeant Matana interacted with him, you could tell that he was good at doing his job because he was in the process of just trying to be reasonable with him and say, look, like, you've been good so far. And he wasn't one of those stereotypical what you'd think of some police officers being harsh and nasty. He was just yeah. talking to him like a person. Yeah, dealing with him like a human yeah. being. And you see that quite often in, in custody documentaries, don't you, where, like, the police officers that are grilling them, the detectives... Uh, sorry, the police officers that are arresting them and the detectives that are grilling them are quite, like, brutal with them. Not physically, but, you know, you know, kind of like they can be quite, like, shouty or demanding. But when they're in custody, they are treated with a level of respect, aren't they? Right, you're here for this, and this is because of this. And yeah. okay, can we take this off you? And there's that that judgment like isn't passed on in that in that in that period of time, is it? When they're when they're kind of booked in and and being looked after. Yeah. So yeah, just um, just really again another really sad case. It is. Uh, shall I wrap this one up, Rachel? So this has been season four, episode two, 
called in the line of duty. And if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. I'd just like to ask everyone one thing today. And that's the question, why? We see, we hear, and we read about crime all the time now. But now, no matter how much we do, the why seems to get even more difficult to understand. So until next week, and, and if you you haven't given birth by yet, Rachel, you I think you most definitely would have done next week. So um, until next week, we shall see you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Thank you.